So this is actually the first duet, yep. um, the first duet recording of, okay. on, on Chithead. So, okay. so it's new for me too. It's a new format. I'm usually just one on one. So we'll see how this goes. Okay. Um, so we're here today mostly to talk about um, your book, Man of Peace, and also your book, Issa, uh, Coming, Coming to, to peace. peace. Coming to Peace. So we got... So Peace twice. Peace is a peace, <laughs> peace squared. <laughs> and before I start, just for those who cannot see uh, the lovely and uh, gracious Issa Bucciardi and the notorious B.O.B. Uh, Bob <laughs> Thurman, we're here uh, today at the Science and Non-Duality Conference, and Issa was very um, generous to uh, put together this uh, co-interview with her and Bob. So we're here to talk about Man of Peace and also to talk about uh, Coming to Peace. But before we talk about those books, I'd just love to sort of reflect for a moment on the talk you both just did or the workshop uh -huh. you just both offered, which was called Shamans and Siddhas. Uh -huh. And I know that some people on the podcast or many people will be familiar, at least um, uh, in a uh, kind of um, introductory way of what shamanism is. But I'd love for you, Bob, to just talk about what is a Siddha? Right. So Siddha comes from the verb Asid, which means to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so we usually translate uh, Siddha as adept. And Mahasiddha, great adept. Although in the old days, when people were first discovering Buddhist tantrism and Indian spiritual history, they called them great sorcerers. Because mm. <laughs> they did do sort of magical things, supposedly. Although, you know, modern materialist scholars consider that mythical, right? Yeah. But uh, the Buddhists don't, and they consider that they did these different things. And there's a famous set of 84 of them, who basically they are kind of like, you know, the archetype of the tantric, uh, tantric Buddha. Mm -hmm. You know, like in the, in the Theravada, what I call individual vehicle, uh, the highest sort of thing goal is to become an arhat, mm. which is like a saint. Yeah. And then in the Mahayana, universal vehicle, the highest thing is to become a Buddha and then the bodhisattva on the way, and then a number of Buddhas pretend to be bodhisattvas afterwards to sort of get close to people and, and encourage them and help them without seeming too far away, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So then in Tantra, uh, the one who attains Buddhahood in Tantra is called a great adept or a Mahasiddha. Mm -hmm. So it's like the third archetype. And in a way, what they are is, um, they are Buddha, they're considered to be Buddhas, but they manifest in a sort of more popular way. And some of them are weavers. Some of them are, they're like anthropologists in a way. They go out with tribals in India, they did. They go to Tibet, they went to Japan, to Indonesia. They're kind of, they are a little bit magicians and they are teachers, but they go out and do it in a sort of ordinary way. Like Milarepa, for example, in Tibet was a Siddha and he was not a monk and he was a, he was a layman. But he was a yogi, and he lived in the mountains all the time, you know. And then there were some who were kings. There's a few kings. There's a few women. Not as many as the, there are not as many formally accepted as adepts, women as there were. So in the set of '84, there's only four of them. Mm -hmm. But actually, each one of the eighty usually had woman teachers, because it's an exo esoteric sort of level of things. Yeah. So that's a siddha, mm. and of course Buddha was an original siddha, but he has manifested his. The body that he manifested as a teacher was a, as a monk. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some Siddha monks, but usually they don't, they leave uh, being monks because they, they deal with, uh, with women, you know. Yeah. And um, they sometimes marry them, so they sometimes have a number of consorts and so forth. 
uh, they are uh, they are they are an amazing bunch. They're, they're they're quite an amazing bunch. Yeah. Well, I recognized the word siddha from my knowledge of the Kashmir Shaivite Shaivite tradition. Right. And I, and that's sort of the Hindu side of tantra, and of course Tibetan Buddhism, that's as right. you know, is the the tantric form of Buddhism. Right. What is the connection historically there is uh, that you see between these two streams? Do you th are they Hindu and Hindu Buddhist? Mm -hmm. mean? Oh well, they're very similar. And uh, in uh, for example, one of the most famous works among tantric adepts is Nagarjuna's five stages, it's called Panchakrama, yeah. and uh, the perfection stage, that's sort of the very advanced yogic stages, where you do outer body, what they call magic body, I call magic body, some people call it illusion body, and so on. Mm -hmm. And in, the, in those verses, they say at a certain advanced stage, Vishnu and Vajrasattva are same, you know, Avalokiteshvara and Shiva are same, in other mm -hmm. words, they, they don't make any religious uh, discernment or discrimination, mm -hmm. in a way. And um, then there's a scholar, an Oxford scholar named Sanderson, who had some teachers in Kashmir nowadays, Shaiva, and he has a lot of theories about, he thinks the Buddhists copied the Shaivas. Mm. So he makes a big competitive thing yeah. out of it, and as his teachers did in India, probably. Yeah. But um, and, um, there may be Buddhists who do that, and there are some traces that there is some kind of, out of almost in a celestial plane, that Vajradhara or Chakrasambhara and Shiva, they have a little, or some forms of Shiva, let's say, have a little something going on. But basically, uh, it's not a problem. Uh, I feel, basically, that the Buddhists originate most of the tantric things, yeah. because tantra involves shifting identities to a divine identity, yeah. and shifting the environment to a sort of celestial, mandalic environment. And if you're brought up as a Brahmin kid, and you're brought up therefore like like a Catholic or something. You're afraid of God, you know, Shiva or something. Yeah. It's a little harder for you, I think, mm -hmm. to go around saying I am God, yeah. and I'm not going to meditate myself in the well, body. Call you crazy. Yeah. yeah. In other words, it's a little awe-inspiring, a little bit fearsome. Yeah. Whereas Buddhists, although they don't deny the existence of gods, they relativize them and they're not really scared of them. Yeah. You know, they they like them and uh, they. Um, Sometimes they tend to, there's some poems like the gods are a little proud because they're gods, you know, they get a little like worked up, you know, about how they are. And there's a wonderful Buddhist poem, like it's a blessing poem. It says, May you be blessed by the happiness of the gods when they see, when they're bowing to the Buddha and they see reflected in his shining toenails their own crown diadems, you know, their jeweled diadems. And when they see the sparkling reflection of their diadems in the Buddha's toenails, they feel a special bliss. Mm. And may that bliss be for your blessing. You know, it's like a Sanskrit poem. Mm. So they have things like that. And the reason they feel like that with Buddha is that although gods are quite enlightened in one way, and they're really powerful and very beautiful and so forth, and although they can also be fearsome, uh, the Buddha doesn't make a difference between himself and them. So when they meet a Buddha, they also have that feeling people do, like when they meet the Dalai Lama or some enlightened person, yeah. where they suddenly feel like instead of a person opposite you who's different from you, you a little bit feel enfolded in the consciousness of someone who experiences themselves as you at the same time as themselves, yeah. which is a completely different thing. So you know, instead of you're the God and this is versus another God or a lowly human or something, there's this field that you're in where you somehow feel that the other one is completely with you. Mm. 
and then your sense of pride, I'm better, kind of melts a little bit in that, you know? Yeah. Wow. So now, connecting this to sort of the, the, the theme of the workshop, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious because, I, I mean, I arrived 15 minutes late, so perhaps I missed if this was remarked upon, but I was sort of curious what, um, and maybe, uh, Issa, you want to start, what the inspiration was behind bringing these two traditions together in a workshop, shamanism and Tibetan Buddhism. You, you go oh. ahead, ladies first. <laughs> you mentioned you. Well, it was actually Bob's idea. Okay. And really? Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me. Yeah, you were like, we should do shamans and siddhas. Oh, like, right. Okay. Sure. It's a great title. It really is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and I think, um, you know, uh, so maybe you should talk about the inspiration. I know. Well, okay. Know. You know, the thing that I would say that, um, and, you know, I don't know why. You do things you don't know why. Yeah. And when I met my original guru who, who, or lama, who was really the major per- turning point in my life, I told somebody that, oh, I'm, he's my guru. And they said, well, why? He's just uh, like a little man, you know, in New Jersey, <laughs> you know, with that, with that kimono on. He's like a Mongolian. He's not even Tibetan, etc. And I said, no, no, that's my guru. So I met a lot of other gurus. That's my guru. And they said, well, why? And I said, well, because in, in a weird way, he's not even there, I said. So I don't ha- I don't feel he has any agenda to use me in his agenda. He doesn't have any agenda for me. Uh, yeah. Therefore, he will he will be of help to me. I mean, he, I can trust him. And I didn't know what I was saying. I had no idea what I was saying. But many years later, I think I now have a good sense of why I felt that way. But and it blurted it out. But I don't know. So maybe I know I don't know my inspiration. But actually, after today, I had a bunch of breakthroughs in this event. You see. For Tibetan Buddhism, for example, other Buddhists used to say, oh, that's so corrupt and that's weird and because it's all shamanistic. <laughs> and they use that as a negative yeah, thing. Yeah. The, the illiterate religions are all negative, like witch doctors and yeah. weird things, you know. They make a thing like that. And then there was some in Asia and in history between Buddhist missionaries, let's call them, although they're not really missionaries, but Buddhists who ended up teaching and serving people. And then sometimes they're shamans like in Mongolia, they don't really like that. And there was, there is one point of conflict or difference, which is, Buddha doesn't like sacrificing animals, mm. even if you're not a vegetarian. It's a sin. It's a sad. You're taking a life. You're sorry about it, but you're used to eating that way. If you're a nomad, you have to have grazing animals. They can't have big gardens, on a high step, you know. And so, so, but they don't like holy killing mm. of animals. Mm-hmm. So some kinds of shamanism, they feel like, I once had a great friend who was a Yoruba high priest, and he said, he's got to have that chicken and wring its neck and spray the blood around. So I said, well, that's where we can't really completely meet. But if you go to Ogun, you know, the god of iron in the Yoruba religion, and convince Ogun to become a vegan, then you can do all your rituals with some some tomato juice. (laughs) And something like... You know, like a, a chicken made out of uh, flour, you a know, plastic sugar, like a yeah, like a marzipan chicken. <laughs> no problem, you know. Yeah. But but because uh, you sort of the form of the ritual, mm. and you know that deity, they, they won't get um, cancer, they won't get any weird diseases from bad meat, because mm. they'll be eating some healthy food. Mm-hmm. So that, the Buddhists did that in all these different cultures, you know, and they sort of vegetarianized the situation, you know. 
and uh, a little bit, even though they're not necessarily a complete vegetarian. Some Chinese Buddhists are the best vegetarians, actually. Mm. Um, Sri Lankans are not very good. They eat fish, a lot of fish, and Tibetans have to eat their yaks, you know. Yes. At least, though, they don't like small animals because they don't want to have a life of bite, you know, mm -hmm. like oysters. I mean, that they freak out about. They don't want that. So they eat a big animal they can eat for months, you know. And one sin will carry them for three months with the dried meat, you know. Mm. I mean, prosciutto, you know, yak prosciutto. Mm. So anyway, so there was that one point of conflict. And now, shamanism, though, however, I feel in this uh, a Protestant, alienated, anti-nature culture, yeah. a psychotic culture that we have, industrial culture, not just Western anymore, it's worldwide, getting back to nature and to animal spirits and you know, who, we're, who are being species extinction going on like mad, you know, wrecking the planet, you know. So shamans are really great in that they can link back, you know, and they have, uh, they, they had ayahuasca, you know, they have entheogenics or psychedelics, you know, and they give people vision quests and they're marvelous. And, they, and, and in uh, the ones around, like Isa, they're not really ringing any chicken, so that's not a problem. And Buddhism has that element, you know, Book of the Dead and this kind of thing, that, that it's aware of the, the invisible levels and uh, yeah. demons and deities and angels and demons and things like that. And gods, even Buddhism is not against gods. Yeah. There's, there's a completely wrong idea that Buddhists are atheists. It's absolutely not. They just don't think there's one creator. You know, they don't monotheistic one, but they, they think there are gods. Brahma's talking to Buddha all the time. They give him a bath when he's a baby. Brahma and Indra. You know? Well, one of my favorite lines you said in the workshop was, gods are people too. I liked that. It's what? Gods are people oh, yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They are. So, so I think that it's really great to relate. And I, I'll tell a story. I didn't tell you this yet, but Alberto Villoldo told me a story about how he met uh, a famous Zen guy who used to be here in California and had a little scandal, but he's still he's a nice guy. Uh, Dick Baker, a guy called Richard Baker, who was a, a founded all the San Francisco Zen Center, pretty much. Oh, wow. He was the first successor of the Japanese guy, and he built up their whole system. Then there was a scandal, and he, he's, he went off. Oh, but anyway, he met Alberto, and then they had something, and then he told Alberto, said, oh, you know, a lot of spirits, something, like they were, they were in Japan or something. And then he said, the Zen guy said, but we don't deal with those spirits, you know. We don't, if we run into a spirit in meditation, we don't pay no attention to this. That's useless, ridiculous, and so on. Then apparently he went down and visited Alberto in Peru, and they took ayahuasca and had some other cactus, you know, like something. San Pedro. And then they were in Machu Picchu. Mm. And then... Saw a lot of spirits there. And then Baker said, oh, there's a lot of spirits around here. And then he, he was holding Alberto's hand. And, like this, and then Alberto told me, he said a little bit naughtily, he said, oh, we don't really pay attention to spirits. <laughs> so that's like the Buddhist shaman thing, you know, sort of not, not quite a meeting, but they were friends, so it was like a meeting. Yeah. But, but on a theoretical level, you know, the journey, getting with, dealing with your own unconscious, the issues of death and dealing with deceased people, ancestors, um, although Buddhists don't worship ancestors, they think ancestors are reborn and they're around them, and they, so they have a different attitude than some people do. But it, the, the whole area, I think, is very useful to make relationships. You know? yeah. And it may well be of help in Asia, where there's a residue of the kind of struggles between, in Mongolia, for example, nowadays there's a rekindled kind of shaman 
right. Buddhist struggle a little right. bit because of the animal sacrifice, pretty right. much. And uh, also just competing for clients, you know, and competing mm-hmm. for uh, supporters, you know. Mm-hmm. And so in, in, it might be nice to be, uh, more we understand that, and then I want to learn from the shaman thing, and I think they might find things useful about the Buddhist knowledge of the subtle body and life and death and book of the dead, this kind of thing. Yeah, it seems like a fruitful intersection, and <clears throat> I appreciate you mentioning how it really is encouraging Buddhists to reconnect to the earth, because I feel like, in my own observation, a lot of times East Asian philosophies by Westerners get appropriated in kind of a renunciant way. Oh, yes. So they encourage that desire to escape and not connect. And there's a lot of yogis and a lot of people who are practicing practicing Buddhists who I feel like don't have, uh, it's not embedded in those traditions to cultivate a relationship to the earth, at least as apparently. So it is, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to bring them together in the way that you guys have done. Mm -hmm. So Isa, I wanted to ask you a question actually about, you took us on the shamanic journey, which was really beautiful. It was the first time I've ever done that. Oh, and, really? Um, oh, cool. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, I found myself, uh, I, I went to the Puget Sound where I grew up and um, and uh, a bear was my guide, but I wanted to oh. be in the water, so I, I, eventually that bear became a, a fish bear, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and But there was a person that asked a question that I thought was really interesting the way you answered it, and it's, it's a, it was a good question, and so I just want to re-ask it here. And that question was, um, how do you know what's real versus what's imagined in the context of, of, of the shamanic journey. And I thought your reflection on that was really interesting. So do you want to rehash that a little sure, bit for sure. us? Sure, Well, I think that, you know, well, first of all, I mean, I can expand upon that a little bit. I think that one of the things that happens in our educational system is that people are not really taught to trust their own experience. There's a lot of emphasis on learning when you're learning you're trying to get to a place where you can share a a consensus idea about something and that's there's an external authority that says this is the way things are and this these are the exercises that you do in order to understand that this is the way things are and on the one hand I i think we really need to have a consensus reality because this is a pretty crazy wild place yeah right and having a consensus reality is really helpful to help organize things and to help bring forward, you know, some kind of cooperation. But that there, there's, a, there's been a real loss, especially now with the loss of the arts and music and, you know, the philosophy as part of the formation of young people, that where there's this inner inquiry that is kind of lost. And... So when people are asked to look inward and to try to understand what is arising from within them, they hesitate because, first of all, they're not used to doing that, and they're used to having some kind of external approval saying, this is right or this is wrong. And so one of the things that happens is that they're like, okay, I don't know. I don't know if this is right. I need, I need an external authority to tell me this is right. And also one of the things that happens is because the education system has been, is bereft of the imaginal world. I mean, there's no art classes anymore yeah. in, in, middle, in like middle school and very little in, in preschool and elementary school compared to what there was. And so the, and there's just, you know, this, Bob talks a lot about this you know, materialist scientific view yeah. that's kind of deadening to the world. And 
in that view, which is the dominant view, the dominant theology of the time, um, imagination is something that is an anathema. Yeah. And so people, when they hear about imagination, it's just imagination. It's not like, imagination, imagine, yeah. imagine where the world could go, right? Mm-hmm. So so in the, in the answer that I gave in class today, I, I was, what I was trying to help the person understand is that the imagination is a very, very powerful vehicle for, for transcending what is. Mm-hmm. And the, what I said in class was, you know, everything in the room was imagined by someone before it came into being. I mean, you, things don't come into being unless they're imagined, right? Yeah. And so the human imagination is actually this very powerful tool uh, which acts as a bridge in the shamanic journey into the realm of the guides. And, uh, you know, I gave that example of, the, of my client who had an experience where she was sure she was imagining things and then the guide performed a particular act to show her that she could not be imagining it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I always say to people, you know, if it's okay, if it's fine. Think you're imagining it. Imagine how wonderful your imagination is. Make friends with it. Develop an internal guide through your allowing yourself to have your imaginal sphere. And then step into this numinous world of these helping spirits through the journey and allow them to teach you and allow them to help you establish a relationship where you understand and trust yourself again. And this, for me, you know, I have to say, it's the most wonderful thing for me to be able to help people have this trust be reborn in them. Because people are really lost and, you know, they keep looking to these external orthodoxies that have their own agenda. And the wonderful thing about working with the shamanic journey and the way we do in applied shamanism is that people are able to find their own path to spirit through the iconography of the natural world, which is not owned by any particular orthodoxy. Yeah. So they can find themselves on their path where they are. And I have to add a caveat here because in applied shamanism, it's a little bit different than traditional shamanic practice because traditional shamanic practice doesn't have this idea of self-evolution or the the possibility of becoming uh, more enlightened. And in general, in traditional practice, the journey is used to establish relationship with helping spirits who then help you heal and or help you perform certain uh, uh, processes such as rituals or divination or helping the spirits of the dead. Um, and those are all incredibly important and powerful processes. But those, the idea that you are going to evolve in a particular direction toward an enlightened state doesn't exist mm. in, in, in traditional mm. shamanic practice. Mm-hmm. But in applied shamanism, because of I, you know, which is the form of, of shamanism that I teach and that I've developed, is because of my years of Buddhist study, I've I've really adapted the shamanic journey into a process, not unlike you know the more rigorous I think vipassana types of meditations where you are taking an issue, you're looking at it, you're asking a question, you're waiting for an answer. You're using your one-pointed focus to kind of drill into 
you know, a karmic knot and, you know, allowing the meditative space to open it for you. Now, the reason that I like working with the journey rather than just that straight ahead Vipassana, although I do work that way all the time myself and I do teach that, but I like working with the journey again because of this sense of emptiness or the sense of personal isolation that people have. Their inner lives are, uh, the word I hear all the time is bereft. Mm. There's like, there, there's, it's their, it's like their inner, their inner world is really bereft of any kind of meaning and they, they don't have any handholds. And when you're working with the guides in the shamanic journey and the way that we do with applied shamanism, you have an internal anchor that helps you look at these really kind of karmic knots that are difficult for people to look at. People feel like they have an internal support. They're encouraged and they're supported as they try to move into these more difficult aspects of their experience. And so it's not unlike in Tibetan Buddhism where you have, for instance, the medicine Buddha that might come to someone who's sick and they might pray to the medicine Buddha, do devotional practices, maybe do a deity meditation where they are embodying the field, stepping into the field of the medicine Buddha and allowing the medicine Buddha to give them a cure, you know, to give them insight about where they might go with their disease, mm -hmm. right? So that's, there's an intersection there which is very, very key and profound. Yeah. And it's where it, that is where shamans and siddhas meets really in that in, you know in these amazing iconography of the of the uh, Buddhist uh, Tibetan Buddhist deities. There, it's very similar the way in which they can be worked with. Yeah, I'm really glad you ended on uh, right there because that sort of segues into my next question. But I just want to go back and say that I appreciate the thoughts on imagination because I feel like too often imagination uh, gets conflated with fantasy and so imagination ends on the other it's uh, you know it's a binary an arbitrary binary between imagination and reality and what you're really um, inviting us to reflect on is how imagination actually is sort of the precursor to a different manifestation of reality mm -hmm. so it's not on the other side it's not this sort of like um, uh, dualism sort of so to speak can I offer yeah. a further thought there because I think that when imagination is used for fantasy, it's often used to escape. Yeah. And that's the way what most people are using it. Most people are trying to escape. Yeah. And they're and it's funny because I actually don't like fantasy. I know Bob, you love science fiction and fantasy I do too. novels. I can't stand it. You know, it's like <laughs> I find it, I, I I get impatient with it because I feel like it's not real. You know. Do you and like stories about sorcerers or? Um, I like practices with sorcerers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the actual experience of it, and uh -huh. I like to stay close. I like to use the imagination to, or that as a bridge to go for closer to the self, mm. not away from the self. And I know ultimately mm. it's mm. all the same place. It can all wind up in the same place. But I, I really have an issue with people going too far into fantasy. Sure. It, it's really, and this is why, like for instance, a lot of Zen practitioners don't like Tibetan Buddhism because they're afraid they're going to go too far into this delusion, right? Yeah. And people do go into delusion. But I always say, imbalance is grounding. Pathology is grounding. If you stay close to the problem at hand and use the tools that we work with in applied shamanism with 
with the idea that you are you are addressing an issue that is problematic, you are not ever going to go into fantasy. Mm-hmm. You are you're always going to stay in the imaginal realm that can provide insight and understanding, which is the realm of Tantra. Yeah. Right? Because this is this is the you're you're very close up against the elemental energies that are composing the karmic knots that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Right? And you're Work, you have to imagine that you can enter into them and work with them in the way that we do in order to be able to work with the way that they do. So this idea of, of staying close to, to the issue at hand, I'm actually like super serious. Like, you know, I goof around, and, but I am like, my advanced students will tell you, you know, I'm just like, I turn into this kind of general. You know, it's like, okay, all right, what are we doing here? Let's, you know, like stop goofing around. You can't, don't bang the drum unless you're going to be journeying, you know, like. People need like, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need a little of that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. So to go back then about because one of the questions that I had, and then we'll move into conversation about about the book, is that I noticed a correlation between the inner guide of shamanism and the kind of the iconography of Tara and the medicine Buddha. But what I found sort of interesting as a difference is that in the shamanic journey, there is a kind of you're invited to, you know allow the image to kind of spontaneously arise for you and it might be very different it's infinitely variable you know mine was a, a fish bear you know someone else's might be you know a, you in your book you write about someone who had a pillar of light that was um uh, had a quality of being um i can't even remember strong or something so it's so variable it doesn't even have to be an animal whereas with tibetan buddhism there's you know there's there's iconography that's set for you so i'm curious about what this what is the kind of What's the status or what's the significance of that difference between, you know, um, inviting uh, that imagery to kind of spontaneously form in your own experience versus having a kind of set iconography that you're using? Do you want me to Bob, take that? Bob, do you want to? Well, uh, it's like in the case of Jung, you know. Mm. Carl Jung has these mandalas, and then the idea is that you and the Western psychology idea is that you want to let your unconscious express itself to you. Yeah. And so you make your mother and then you can analyze that and you can see your unconscious because the idea is that you're otherwise not going to know because your unconscious is in principle remains unconscious. Whereas I think uh, the Buddhist psychology, because of the being in the multi-life framework as an automatic consensual reality, you your goal as a human being is to become conscious of your unconscious and to reshape the energies of your unconscious and you don't need to in a way and they they don't need to talk to you as fish bears you know (laughs) in other words you need to find them you need to harness that fish bear and then maybe you want to harness it and saddle it and bridle it and use it for some purpose you know and sort of relate to it in a way where you you go somewhere with it in a transformative way. Mm-hmm. And so, but in a way they've developed their different forms by thousands of years of people doing, letting, you know, letting their mind play free. I think one thing I wanted to say about imagination in relation to what Isa was talking about, and that is that according to Buddhist very highly technical psychology and epistemology, we are imagining the world all the time. Yeah. And our routine conceptualization is sort of routinized imagination around the chair. Like that chair is not presenting itself out of its own chairness. 
I'm imagining a chair and I fit my image of a chair over some, some visual optical atomic data going to the neurons in my brain through the optic nerve and so on. And I'm organizing, you know, and like people when they do vision quests or things and they start hallucinating, it's because something changes their ability to immediately fit everything they experience into some preconceived idea, which is a routinized or fixated imagination that comes through the culture and whatever you've learned, you know. And this is where emptiness is a really big and important thing. You know, voidness, emptiness, you know, the critical negational meditations of the Buddhist scientists. Because that's how you erode the grip of your conceptualization over your, over your, your instinctual or your sort of immediate experience. But it isn't to just eliminate them. There's another vague misunderstanding of Buddhism that the whole thing is to not imagine anything and not have any concepts and your mind just is like blah mm -hmm. and that's supposed to be enlightenment but that actually isn't the case. It's rather to reshape those images and then use them in a structured way. Mm -hmm. So I think the tantric thing has a little bit of free play in it but the idea is that you want to shape the erotic energy, the aggressive energy and you, and you, want, to, you want to put on a kind of ideal suit or uniform like a you know like a Michelin man suit they put when they do spacewalks mm -hmm. or their body would explode mm -hmm. so if you go down and do spacewalks in the space of your unconscious then you are you you should clothe yourself in a dream or subtle body that is able to deal with with uh, Thanatos you know yeah. the god of death or Eros you know the god of erotics you know and uh, and so it's it's really western people don't like it but they're backward in this sort of thing mm. You know, and the Buddhists have centuries of, you know, they had the 10,000 Freuds and Jungs and Reichs way back in India and Tibet a long time ago, you know. Yeah. And this is kind of codified in a way that's, that's very useful and don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just because it shows that the Western people are not that superior as they like to think they are. You know? They certainly aren't. You know? Well, in terms of, uh, speaking of reshaping images, there's a lot yes. of images in your new book. <laughs> so we'll mention Man of Peace, and we're here on audio with the podcast, but those of you who are watching, this is um, uh, Bob's new book, and uh, it's a graphic novel of the, of the life story of the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Now, I, I, I assume you didn't, you didn't make these portraits. No, no, we pictures. had a team of, uh, <laughs> a team of uh, five artists, mm -hmm. and then two other writers working together with, with me, and... Um, and an, an originator, a lady who died, who was kind of the originator of the religion. Maybe she's the eighth person. Okay. Or what? Like, yeah, yeah, ninth person, maybe, who wanted her husband, who was one of my co-writers, to push this project along. Yeah, what was the inspiration behind making, you know, you've, you're an academic, you spent many years writing very academic texts. This is obviously right. very different in spirit from those, right. from those books. So right. what inspired you to be a part well, of this Well, it's been, the knowledge of what His Holiness did is based on my study of the Dalai Yeah, of course. And along my, my long 53-year friendship, 54-year friendship with him, and being in many of the incidents with him, actually, but not all of them, but quite a few. And, uh, but the, the inspiration of the lady who, who the Dalai Lama was kind to and shared his physician, extending her lifespan for about two or three years, um, having been given a stage four thing, you know, and, and uh, some time back in the 80s, I think, uh, hers was that she wanted it like this so young people would know the story of the Dalai Lama. And then her husband brought it to me, but he was, he's not a writer, 
and he was he's a book designer sort of person, but he wanted to see it done, you know. So then I saw it, I thought it was a great idea, and actually I didn't even realize it, but one of the people I interviewed with uh, in my sort of book tour said, well, you had just written a book called Why the Dalai Lama Matters about the Dalai Lama and his importance in world politics and world history at this time, mm-hmm. and what that importance is, which indeed I had, and so it's natural that your next step, you would want to see a version of his life where which he would never present himself, mm. Because he wouldn't present himself in a heroic, right. you know, archetypal. Like I once said when he wrote another book earlier that I liked a lot uh, called um, Ethics for the New Millennium, mm-hmm. which was, I really liked because he called in there uh, a few years after I bo- wrote that book called Inner Revolution, showing mm-hmm. the social transformative aspect of Buddhism, which I think had been very much neglected by Buddhists. Yeah. And um, he wrote, he wanted to call for an ethical revolution. So I had called for a spiritual and inner revolution, mental psychic revolution. He called for an ethical one. So I, I saw him and I said, okay, now you're ready to be a prophet? I said, that's really great for stepping into the role of being a prophet, speaking truth to power. He says, no. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> he didn't. He's just calling for people to be more ethical. So you know. And he's thinking maybe also prophet in English means predicting the future. Ah. Partly, I think, was yeah. linguistic mix up partly. And partly, he just didn't want to be taking a, presenting himself as taking a powerful position mm. in the nature of the way humans should be conducting life on this planet now. But he actually occupies such a powerful of position. Course. Indeed, yeah. he does. Yeah. And uh, actually, unlike Gandhi and King, he didn't get shot yet. And I think he That's won't. And, uh, but he's occupying a position like that. I was speaking truth to power. He says no to... And actually, he and I were blocked. I won't say who, but we had all the budget. We had the director. We had a contract, and he he authorized me. We were going to do a special, in, like inconvenient truth type of documentary uh-huh. conference, in which we were going to attack basically the arms industry. Mm. And there's that Swedish institute that tracks all the arms dealers. And you know, there is this sick thing in the world today where. Five veto power wielding nations in the United Nations, supposed to be a world peace organization, right? They are the biggest arms dealers on the planet, those five, you know, China, Russia, US, France, and Britain. And they are massively producing, I mean, there are other people, Czechoslovakia, even Sweden produces arms. But, but it's a horrible industry. And, you know, they, they might be having riots in some tribal thing in South Sudan, but they wouldn't be able to exterminate whole villages and everything, but they have. AK-47s and just happy to sell them to them, all the arms dealers. So we were going to do a movie like that. And then some people, I, can't, I don't say who would they, oh no, you know, His Holiness shouldn't come out and speak out when these governments that are arms dealers, you know, one has to appeal that they finally take give Tibet a break, you know. Mm. You know so you don't want to go out and condemn that. They, they said, he, he was ready to go with me. Yeah. And do that, like an Al Gore thing on the environment, but we're going to do it with the arms trade, which is a terrible trade. You know? Wait, I'm, I'm confused how it connects to Tibet, how, how calling out those governments who are doing the arms dealing would affect, negatively affect Well, Tibet. those people who don't realize that Tibet will be free, you know, what you could call a 60, whether it's politically under someone's technical paper sovereignty or what, but it's free on the ground yeah. in their own way of controlling their life and their environment and their dharma, you know. And it will not be free, just like Standing Rock 
will not be there preserving the water system until the world system changes. Yeah, of course. Within the current nation state, armed to the teeth, petro uh, petrochemical culture that we that the planet is gripped by, those places just can't be free. And they're hoping somehow by compromising and not calling about it, then that one of them will have pity on them and save them. But that's not the case. That's why and Dalai Lama kind of he doesn't want to get too far out from those people, but yeah. another, he was ready to go for it anyway. And he said he has said things like publicly like generals and these you know military things like referring to Iraq or something when they have their wars and they're just taking human bodies like throwing logs on a fire they just don't mind they're, oh yeah we'll lose hundred thousand know and he doesn't even know the history of World War one and I didn't actually know one thing and I bet you don't you know when they would charge out of their trenches for to get a hundred meters of progress in the in the World War One, you know, when they yeah. killed thirty million, forty million people at yeah. that time with a much lesser population on the planet. The the generals knew that the first seven rows of soldiers going out were just machine gun bullet absorbers. Oh my god. It was only the eighth row they could then jump into the trench and start going The seven was absolutely one hundred percent gonna die. Totally. No question. They were just gonna absorb bullets until they, they ran low on ammunition. And then the eighth could maybe jump into the trench from both sides. So they're the generals. And then there are, there are stories, if you read really the history, where some general or, uh, will say, colonel, will say to an adjutant, go find me a captain, I want to shoot him. <laughs> they say, well, nobody did any treason lately. No, I don't care, I want to shoot one. Uh, execute one for being a little soft on the ground trips, you know, because they had to keep them moving. They had to exercise this kind of total brutality, completely inconsiderate of the life of supposedly their own side. Mm. So the Dalai Lama has said, these are like people who just throw lives on the on a fire, like you throw yeah. a log on a fire. So he's ready to call out the world because I think he understands, but not. But he he doesn't want to call them out in the sense of now we'll come get you with our troops. He wants to call them out in the sense that now you have to stop and we have to talk. Yeah. You have to see what is it you need, because what you don't need is another war with anybody, mm -hmm. and you need to dialogue, and we can't have 21st century, you know, he's a man, man of peace, he's a man with a message that 21st century cannot be like a, a century of bloodshed, like a World War century of the 20th century, mm -hmm. right? Which was one long war, you know, 150 wars going on even in the 90s, you know, here and there, yeah. semi-proxy, non-proxy. And in a way, it's all proxy because why? It's selling weapons for these huge industries that dominate these countries. And so that's their market. And to them, it's a great value-adding market because you use up the bomb and then they have to make another one. Mm. Never mind that people are like being the victims of these bombs, right? And then maybe they, I, I'm sure there's something in their mind like, there's too many people, well, we can get rid of lots of them. Never mind. They feel that way and that's not human being. It's not human way of living. Mm -hmm. So Dalai Lama's call to the world is like that. But you know, he, he doesn't want to present himself like that. And then sometimes the people who feel he's theirs, they get a little scared if he's presented it in sort of too powerful a way. Yeah. But the man of peace presents, shows his life as a real nonviolent hero in the midst of genocide and not reacting to genocide with hatred and bitterness and wish for vengeance. And then trying to help others not do it to each, each other, you know. For example, he shows here how he accepted 
a suggestion from Tutu and others that they go to Iraq before the Bush and Cheney, I should call it the Cheney invasion, yeah. Cheney Roosevelt invasion, and talk to Saddam Hussein and make it impossible for the excuse that Cheney used by having Saddam Hussein really say, no, I'm not, I don't have nukes, and etc. You know, he did kind of say that, but not really because he was scared of the Iranians and others he wanted to pretend he did have something to Saddam Hussein. But you know that group would have gone and tried to make it real, like the, like the Swedish guy who was running the arms inspector who said no they don't have it they, they don't, but still the power the, they made power lie in the UN and then they got their excuse and they went in there and they and we're still seeing the damage from that. Yeah. That's the yeah. creation of they can't blame Obama for ISIS. <laughs> That's they they did it they, they wrecked the whole place and it's still going on, and just now we have betrayed for the nineteenth time. Since colonials have been wrecking the Middle East, we just betrayed the Kurds, who were our only allies and who were the only ones trying to be cool. You know, and we just betrayed them to the Shiites, you know, who were supposedly our enemies because of the nuclear deal. I mean, it's just nutty what they're doing. And so, and we're in a state, I take great heart, actually, personally, in the total incompetence of all these leaders. You take heart in that incompetence. Yeah. Because nobody, because in their, nobody in their countries thinks they're doing a good job. Yeah. It's just the democracies are not working. Yeah. They're corrupted by money in our country where we yeah. have good, we should have good mechanisms to do it, but it's completely corrupted by money, right up to the Supreme Court, who are irrational. Yeah. They're, not, they're not rational judges, they're irrational corporate shills, you know, yeah. those people, yeah. and most of them, and uh, majority. And uh, so, that's for the man of peace. And I've had people who had read the Dalai Lama's autobiographies express pleasure and delight to me that you know they didn't quite read all of it, you know, because it's just words on a page. You know how nobody can read anything anymore yeah. too easily because so some visual stimulation has to be there, right? Because of all our machineries, and which are I think basically all good, although a little worry about the young being too much onto them. Yeah, totally. But you know, they're really young, but they're all good. And they said, well, here because of the pictures. And because they could go through it, they got through all the aspects of his life. And then they saw his spiritual development, they saw his... But they saw it in the context of him not reacting to really harsh physical experiences for himself and his people. Yeah. You know, I mean, basically a kind of genocide has been going on there because of the foolishness of the rulers, not the regular Chinese people. They're no more bad or good than any other people. They're just the same. The whole fake thing that Sinologists will tell you that, oh, Chinese are special, they can't lose face. Oh, Chinese think differently. Oh, they're all different. That's a bunch of nonsense. Chinese like to have a party. They like to have fun, like everybody else. They're no more afraid of losing face than some sort of politician who has a tantrum because he's caught, you know, like, uh, like messing around, <laughs> you know, having like an abortion with his mistress, you know, even though he's a big pro-life. Yeah, you know they they're losing faces. They all freak out. You know, so it's they're no different Chinese. Yeah. And actually, big thing in this century is the white friendship with the Chinese people. You know, including the Russians on the our side of that, and not having like a big world a world war between the Euro people and the yellow people is the end of the planet. Yeah, and we can't have that. And who is the better bridge between those two people than His Holiness the Dalai Lama? And uh, I think Xi Jinping, I, I still insist, nobody, everybody says Xi Jinping failed, Xi Jinping is so bad, Xi Jinping is so powerful, and they're going on and on about it. He is going to 
turn around and the Dalai Lama and he are going to be friends. And the Dalai Lama will be, instead of the pariah that they try to chase around the planet and act like he's a bad guy when everybody knows he's the nicest guy. <laughs> instead, he will be their goodwill ambassador. Mm. And uh, because they want to make, you know, they've gone, their economy has gone where they can't just produce all the stuff there. They've ruined their own environment to do that. They have lots of money. They want to have a big global market and they want to deal with that. Yeah. And anybody who leaves the global market, I have an evil joke. The Brexit people, yeah. the Bannon people who want to do white nationalism or any kind of nationalism, when the whole of Eurasia is all woven together with beautiful bullet trains and you can go Paris to Beijing and drink champagne all the way and have fun and the people along the road will have jobs and it'll be fine, there won't be this desperate poverty here and there. And when that happens, people who like to leave the planet on the basis of some isolationist white nationalism or yellow, any kind of nationalism, they can open laundry chains and they can price everybody's shirts and they can do a British version of no ticky, no, no ticky, no washi. <laughs> Steve Bannon can out there and then yeah. the old right can do a little pressing. I would love to see, see Steve Bannon doing some pressing of laundry. <laughs> That'd it's an amazing. evil joke. I shouldn't say mean thing. I hope, <laughs> I hope he'll convert and he'll be very happy. He'll start a fashion industry for the North Koreans. <laughs> I really do hope so. So but my point is the Dalai Lama stands for the hopefulness of this planet. Yeah. We're all operating under this BS yeah. that it's a crappy planet, badly designed. God was really incompetent running, sitting lying around somewhere and like, I don't know what. You know, like making women out of ribs and things like really. And then he didn't make a nice planet. So people can't enjoy each other and they can't, it's not enough for everybody. So we have to see to it that lots of people who we don't like are killed off. Mm -hmm. And animals, we don't need them. It's like Mao, you know, killed all the birds and all the mice and all everything and all the pets. They ate all the pets, you know, because he didn't want to give them a little piece of grain or something. So then meanwhile, they had insect explosions and then Chinese people got all paranoid because there's nobody they could pet. They had no canary to sing to them. They ate them all. All the dogs, the pet. I mean, ridiculous. There's plenty here. If we share, we live nicely. Nobody needs many billions. Maybe we cut off at a billion. <laughs> they can have 100% tax over a billion. Well, I mean, a billion should be cool. You could be able yeah. to buy enough Teslas for a billion. It'd be just cool enough. And uh, so, so the point is, the Dalai Lama represents a vision that this is a beautiful planet and there's enough for everybody. Population control, you don't have to bomb them. All you have to do is educate the women. And then they'll tell the guys, take a freaking hike and go play poker. I'm not having any more kids. <laughs> I, I, or you babysit them. You have them in your belly. I've had enough. One is enough. Yeah. Two is enough. And then population goes zoop down like in a, in a generation. Mm. So, you know, it's very manageable if people would use their common sense and their good hearts. Mm. And every human being has a good heart. It's a real effort to become a mass murderer. You have to really wall yourself really off, try. take a lot of drugs, drink alcohol, like solid, you have to slur it and take drugs and do maybe all Maybe even rubbing stuff. alcohol too. Yeah, yeah, maybe drink any kind of thing. Because basically human beings like to, they have fun being nice, like petting each other and talking to each other. They don't want to like sit there stabbing people. It's tiresome. Yeah. It makes your arms sore. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and, uh, and we're not built for that. No. And, uh, and so he is the one guy who insists on that. Mm. You know, my common human religion is kindness. Yeah. 
And, and so we have finally shown him in his global thing. And I was very worried he would be upset because, you know, like I said, he's out, so you're going to be a prophet now? He says, no. <laughs> he gets me this. And so, but I'm showing him like that. And that's the way he is. I'm confident. Yeah. And I'm also confident he will prevail mm -hmm. in his lifetime. I'm sure. I really am. And, um, you know, I'll go down to sink under the bridge being sure. But I will do it because it's just not possible anymore. The infrastructure can't take it. Yeah. You know, we can't have another world war, you know. Yeah. You know, like that's a great cartoon that they make in, uh, in um, I saw it somewhere. Putin and Trump bareback on a horse looking like the two gay guys that they are. And they're like, you know, Trump has gained, lost a little weight, I think, to get there. And they're like doing some galloping on some horse. That's perfect. You know, and they could have Kim Jong-un like in front. He could be yeah. the coxswain. He's a little guy. Yeah. He could be like, okay, guys, let's get going. No problem. Yeah. And they could have some fun. Kim Jong-un, he can join the village people <laughs> and sing and dance. You, Korean soap operas are awesome. <laughs> you know, you know that he kidnapped the best director and actress and had them in prison for three years in North Korea, and then gave them a huge budget and make movies for him, and then they escaped. Oh, no you know, way. Yeah, because he's jealous of the great South Korean Nam Namgong Namgang, you know, like uh, whatever it's called. You know, South Korean. The South Koreans make the, all the Downton Abbeys of Asia. Chinese and Japanese love them. Oh Thai people watch them like mad. It's like Downton Abbey for all Asian people in sort of Asian dress and costume, both the classical and, and modern. Kim, and Kim Jong Un, uh, he wants to get them. into that business. That's what he really wants. He doesn't want to sit there blowing up rockets and things. He's got he wants some good little, television. He's probably <laughs> got his country. He's probably gotten a little desensitized. So he slaughtered a bunch of people lately. Yeah, oh lately. Yeah. but yeah. but uh, you know, human beings are incredibly malleable. Yeah. The good ones can get really bad really quickly. The bad ones can get really good really quickly. Mm -hmm. If they, and it all has to do with culture and education and a feeling of security and uh, t a little teaching, you know, yeah. a little self-control, a little meditation. Yeah. You know? I appreciate that message of, of hopefulness. Uh, yes. Yeah. So now let's move into talk a little bit about Issa, Issa's book, which is um, yes, Coming, coming to, peace. to Peace. So I, like that. Peace, I have to, to admit... I get at my age, you know, a slight sexual connotation. <laughs> Sorry, God, I Lisa. never even thought of that. Sorry, oh, no. oh my God. Sorry, but it's perfectly all right. Don't worry That's about great. it. That's great. Perfectly all right. That's quite correct. I mean, if peace is orgasmic, anyway. There you go. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Oh my God. Death is orgasmic. Yeah. Peace That's what is I hear. Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich, you know, the great Wilhelm Reich, you know, yeah. the function of the yeah. orgasm. And then his notion of militarism relates to the emotional plague mm. and the neuromuscular armoring where people like Weinstein, like Trump, like these crazy people, their problem is they don't feel internal streaming. Mm. They're orgasmically impotent. <gasps> and they're never satisfied. Then they're grabbing more things because no one of them gets them off, really, truly off, I mean. They get a kind of weird sadistic off, but they don't really get off because they can't. They're walled off on their inner streaming. So Trump They've, is sexually frustrated, and that's the uh, cause totally. of his Totally. Can't you see that? Yeah, I can and, see that. Uh, and his wife can definitely see it. Did you watch them dance? Yeah. Did you wish she was? Yeah. He was like, I just, she was like, 
Because yeah, you yeah. can see the body language. Did you see it? I saw it on the yeah, inauguration yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this. Like this. That means All he right. doesn't really get it from there, you see, because it's not in himself the capability. He hasn't. He he needs to come to Menla, and he needs to have some Korean oh, gosh. acupressure, mm-hmm. and Reichen rolfing, and uh, and a few needles stuck here and there, and like and then be held in such a way that he can let himself feel melting without fear, yeah. which is very hard for him, I'm sure. Oh yeah, and he it's needs, very hard. For he him. needs the sacred stream. What? Uh, he needs the he, sacred stream, which now has a that's totally your different goal. resonance. He needs the teaching. Oh, sacred stream. stream. <laughs> oh, Sorry. I didn't mean to out your book, but it's a great book. It's a great idea. I like it very much. It's beautiful, and it goes through your, your um, method of depth hypnosis. And one thing that I really enjoyed about it in, in the portions that I read was the transcriptions of some of the of the interactions or some of the group the circles and um, and and so do you want to reflect a little bit about yeah, tell um, us about it. tell us about the book <laughs> <laughs> well it's about an orgasm <laughs> <laughs> that lasted a really long time very good but inner one in the heart inner chakra one. in the throat chakra that's right and you're not coming just what they call what, what Freud, <laughs> not what Freud would call genitally organized right exclusively there right okay yeah, there good you go. okay it's also a method of conflict resolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the coming to peace is predicated on this method of conflict resolution that you actually find, again, in many shamanic cultures. Um, in particular, we go into examining Ubuntu, which is the method of conflict resolution that's found throughout Southern Africa. That's right. And Ho'oponopono, which is a method of resolution for conflict and healing that you find throughout the Pacific. And the process of the caucus uh, that the Iroquois League used and which Benjamin Franklin and George Washington used as a model for understanding the relationship between states' rights and federal and the federal government. and which, which they learned from the Iroquois Confederation. That's right, which they learned from the Iroquois Confederation, mm-hmm. right? And the caucus process there, the Ho'oponopono and the Ubuntu, all share this idea that what, what brings peace is when you create the proper container for everyone who's involved in conflict to be able to speak their understanding of what the roots of the conflict are, where there's no interrupting, where their power, our hierarchies are, are dissolved because Lovely, yeah. everyone has an equal, an equal voice, and where mutual respect and um, understanding that everyone wants to be happy actually, and that these these are the the fundamental approach that people bring, the fundamental approach that is brought to the coming to peace process and also the participation of inner wisdom mm-hmm. where their people are encouraged to connect with the part of themselves that knows their own truth so that they have an anchor internally as they are speaking about the external conflict yeah. and in the book we give lots of examples about how you know even something that I've just described taking place over 45 minutes resolving years-long conflict between people when people realize that they actually have the same interest. And um, there's a process of a kind of a time out 
if people are not able to have mutual respect or if they're interrupting or if there's some way in which they're not participating in an honest way, they are then set to connect with this inner wisdom again so that they can find their highest self to be able to come back to the conflict resolution process. So, okay. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's a marvelous compliment to His Holiness's call that this century had all conflicts have to be solved by dialogue, and uh, and the one thing is no violence, no military, but but uh, dialogue. So there, you're providing actual method and technology mm. of of successful dialogue. That's just my uh, thank you. So it fits yeah. with His Holiness no, it totally very very fits. well. Totally fits. And another thing that fits with His Holiness, His Holiness has said uh, this uh, phrase in different ways um, many times, which is that inner conflict drives external conflict. Yeah. You know, he says you cannot have external peace unless you have inner peace. World peace through right. inner peace. That's his right. slogan. And so this is, this is also fundamental to the coming to peace <clears throat> process. And we actually have, so we have a, the external process looks like people sitting in a circle, uh, a talking stick or a talking stone being passed. The mediator holds a very a backseat role. Everyone is is responding to other people's statements about their experience, and they're stating their own experience until there's a resolution. And there is always a resolution. It just takes a little time. And but one of the other processes of coming to peace is inner coming to peace wherein there is a way to work in an altered state of awareness to identify parts of the self that are in conflict and there's a mm. process of reifying Great. those parts through a lot of the work that we were doing with the shamanic journey and that same kind of thing reifying energies within mm -hmm. the self and then having those parts of the self have a dialogue mm. in the same way with the same concept of mutual respect, no interrupting, telling the truth, and again, this internal circle of, of a container for peace is created within the individual, within a, a session of inner coming to peace. And in the book, I give this example of this uh, family who, who, who had a stepfather who was trying to make up for the fact that the biological father was not showing up for the children. And he was driving himself to take more and more responsibility and getting more and more aggressive with everyone around him when he realized that his efforts to take responsibility and try to make things better for the children wasn't working. And so then he was actually turning on himself and he was angry with himself because he was not able to take the responsibility properly that he or execute on the responsibility that he felt he needed to. So in the book we do the coming to peace externally in the in the in the um, work with the family where both the stepdaughter and the stepfather realize that they're taking out their anger at the biological father on each other yeah. which was profound. And then there's a, a inner coming to peace process that's demonstrated through two parts of the self within him where he was trying to resolve his anger and his aggression and he was he found one part that was taking too much responsibility and another part that was angry at that process of taking too much responsibility and they had a dialogue to where they could get to mm -hmm. having a new relationship to responsibility for mm -hmm. both of them. 
-hmm. And that completely changed. Like the that breakthrough that we had in the outer coming to peace session was huge. But then he was able to sustain that peace by resolving the, the conflict between the two inner parts that were driving him to be aggressive because of his upsetness with himself at not taking responsibility properly. Yeah. Right? So so that's a that's what coming to peace is about, and it certainly serves the purposes of His Holiness. You know, I know, I know, Bob, you know, every breath you take is to serve His Holiness, and I feel that way too. You know, I really feel that way. You know, I think both of us are really dedicated to doing everything we can to bring forward His Holiness's, his Holiness's agenda, and, you know, agenda is a little bit of a charged word, but it, you know, because it has attachment. But His Holiness's teachings, you know, mm -hmm. where, and you know, the inner coming to peace process and the external coming to peace process are definitely in alignment with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know, people reading that book will understand more about what brings peace. Yeah. And one of the messages in that book that I it's actually what I wanted the subtitle of the book to be, which is. Um, uh, uh, finding uh, finding peace in the heart of conflict, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I think His Holiness finds peace in the heart of conflict, and He shows the path to that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that you know it, this book that Bob has written, it, I think is invaluable because I think uh, the woman who who was the inspiration for it was absolutely right. Young people will pay attention to this, and they will see there is an alternative to war. And they will see that it is possible to have the courage to face down the forces of aggression with yeah. peace. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's really beautiful. And, and, and it's great, you know, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and I, I so one of the things that I sort of see in the connection between these two books that I really appreciate is is that, you know, so many people are, are are in principle dedicated to the kind of global change that uh, His Holiness is representing. But it's easy to kind of go leap to that like larger kind of global goal and sort of sidestep the immediate relational right. conflict. That's right. And if you don't heal those, really how are you going to be able to be present for that global situation? Right. And so it's sort of like coming to peace is, okay, let's check in, not just with, you know, my conflict as it's manifesting internally, of course it's about that, but it's easy to just sort of like focus in on yourself and, 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 and not allow for, make space for how that personal conflict is hashing out in your interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. And you learn so much about yourself, right, from these interpersonal oh, structures yeah. and, right. and the hierarchies that we allow to develop or we cultivate within uh, the relationships we have. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so to me it's almost like you... Coming to peace is <laughs> coming to peace leads to a personal. I know we're like we're like little kids. In general, I know, right? I know, I know. <laughs> coming to peace is the kind of you know it's the it's the personal orgasm that then leads to the global orgasm. Oh, right. The man of peace, right. Right. where everybody <laughs> gives it up. So so to kind of move on to our. Oh, we're doing it. We're doing a picture now. Great. Um, peace. Um, so for our final kind of departing words, I'd love to kind of have just a general, from both of you, a general thoughts on peace in our current situation. You've been talking a lot about, you know, in um, references to our, our dear president. I almost yeah. said dear departed president, but we're not so lucky. Um, 
our current president. So this current situation, which most people feel is the opposite of peaceful. And, yeah. and you mentioned today, actually, in Shamans and Siddhas, quite rightly, that we're constantly, you know, turning on our media and seeing panic mode everywhere. I mean, yeah. and of course, the, the media culture thrives on that, right? Because it sells it right. sells to, to keep the, 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 the level of um, friction at a high, you know, sure, sure. to represent the situation in that kind of in very hyper intense way. So with all of that happening, with all of the messages saying we're not at peace, we're not at peace, we're not at peace, what is, what is the message for coming from these two books or these two books together f to that situation? Uh, well, one thing that I think of when I hear it, I don't know, do you want to respond to You go, you go, you go. So one thing I think of when I hear that is, Václav Havel was a great inspiration to me and I think to the world. And one of the things that he said about the success of the Velvet Revolution, you know, which yeah. eliminated the Soviets all over Eastern Europe without any any much there was a few demonstrations and things, but no 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 war, no violence. One of the things that he said in, in his own setting of that in Czechoslovakia was that at a certain point the resistance movement there just did what they wanted to do within what whether it was in a jail cell. They did what they wanted to do that they thought was beautiful, and they worked toward beauty, and they simply didn't consider the existence of the oppressive structure on top of them, and they just just made life happen as long as it lasts, and without without even considering. It. In other words, they didn't pose themselves always as freaking out about this thing and fighting it. They just went ahead to be themselves, kind of thing, you know, and then therefore found the energy of the positive energy of life, you know. Yeah. So. My version of that at this moment that came upon me like last week, two, two weeks ago, when Hillary wrote her book, when I have not read yet, but I read an article about her and the writing of it, and then I saw all the reaction, of, and I've been bothered over months by this reaction among so, different so-called liberals. Yeah. Oh, she's a bad, oh, thank God for rid of her, oh, she's a bad campaigner, oh, it's all her fault, oh, she should have won, all this kind of thing, you know, she, it was hers to lose, she won. Actually, she did win. The, our people as a whole majority doesn't want this insanity. She won. They stole hundreds of thousands of votes and suppressed them in the states that were won by a small margin by, the, by these crazy people. And so as a whole, the nation rejected the crazy ones. Yeah. In spite of all the media pumping and all the fuss paying billions of dollars of free advertising basically to them, and uh, she did win, and she did her best. Of course, she's not perfect, you know, and, uh, but she won, A. And then B, I admire the fact that she, at first she said, okay, yeah, it's not rigged, I accept it, yeah, okay, it's yours. Like, she didn't complain, she was cheated, like, like uh, she should have in one way, maybe. Yeah. But anyway, she didn't at first, she followed the system. And, um, and that's like Gore did. Okay, uh, he was the he was the vice president, right? So he was the chair of the joint session of Congress that approved his laws in two thousand, even though he won and was stolen by Baker and the Supreme Court creeps and um, and the brown shirts they shipped in from Texas to prevent Dade County from counting the votes and so on. Gore was cheated, and we had a criminal basically agenda. I don't blame poor Georgie Porgy as much as Cheney. Darth Cheney and Rumsfeld. George is just like a party, you know, he's a playboy, party he's boy. happy, looking for weapons under the table, you know, I mean, he's just a funny guy. And he was, he was exploited by the nasty Darth Cheney and yeah. that people. 
And so I, so I blame them more than him. But the point is, you put a criminal in top of this powerful machine, which was designed for last century, this, this military machine and communication machine, and then they will damage the planet, for sure. And they did. And then Gore was, or the system, I can't say anything, but he did the environment. That's nice. But they were wrecking the environment while he was alerting people about yeah, it. Yeah. They, they were continuing to wreck it, which he wouldn't have done. He wouldn't have invaded Iraq. We're not that bad, our country, at this point. You know, that the second time this happens, but now she is saying in this book, I understand, that this is a clear and present danger. And this is, you have to, she has to speak up, it's her duty, even she's, she can't just sit there and say, oh, I don't want to be sent to be a sore loser, I'm going to go away and be quiet. No, she's saying this is no good, this is wrong. She's using her knowledge, she was State Department for a long time, she's using her knowledge to show what's wrong, and I admire that. Mm. And I think we have to, and the liberal people should really get off it, and they should say, okay, we have a mom for president. We have our own Angela Merkel with her imperfections. She's a little here, they got a little payment over there. Or her husband is like really creepy around by, uh, <laughs> under the, uh, and behind every closet. And he loves he, balloons. He's in every closet here. But, but the point is, he's, he probably damaged her campaign, I feel, mm. by not letting her, well, I don't know, I have no knowledge of that, but sort of psychologically, I feel she might have taken advice of somebody saying, look, you had 13 million votes, Bernie has 10 million. In the old days, that makes him automatic vice president. And then you have to negotiate your differences in that setting. But, you know, he's works with you, just neck and neck. Yeah. That's in the old days. There's no question. You well, don't go find some, some guy, some jolly guy in Virginia who's been out there chasing, like going on the hunt in Middlebury and jumping over fences on his horse <laughs> because he's cute. You don't do that because he brings nothing to it. Yeah. You bring in the guy who got ten million. They who was your runner-up? They would have been such a force. You know. Yeah. And but not Bill. No Bill. No Bill wouldn't like. He was annoyed. Oh Bernie. You know, husband. You know Bill wouldn't like that. He wouldn't do that. That was from Bill. No, I don't know that. Just saying, <laughs> it's the ego. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she's a woman. And they also have ego, but they're a little smarter about connecting with things. Than the men will be, you know. They do. They won't hold grudges, and they, a little bit like that. And so, she is president. And we have a mom. We elected a mom. You know, you guys in California, way ahead. You know, you couldn't be cheated as much as they cheated in the Middle East with those Republican governors there, those Coke-funded Republican governors and legislatures. Mm. And so, we are still in a sane place. And there's just this incredible fuss going on, which is pr promising to just wreck us all all the time. But you know what? They can do what they like. We are in the same place. We have a nice female president in exile. You know, they, they have that in other countries. The Tibetans have the Dalai Lama in exile. We have Hillary in, in Westchester in exile. And she's speaking up, and that's good. We have a shadow government, and they're speaking up, and that's good. We'll lose a lot until we can get the, Then if we do that, we'll stay unified. We'll get the House back in 2018 and will block a lot of their destructiveness, and the New Deal will live, you know, live on, mm, no problem. Mm. So that's so, so, in other words, the, the, the whole real biggest problem internally, PC coming internally and externally, is the wrong belief that it's not possible to achieve. Yeah. You know, I know someone who is a big shot in some of these environmental groups, you know, high-level ones, you know, lots of money, and she told me that 
the, the presentations they had in their board meeting from scientists, and then the fact that all the, almost all the other board members came in private planes, they didn't come commercial airlines, and that really, although they're still putting a lot, and they should, and they're putting a lot of money and effort into trying to save this and that, they all basically believe it's too late, and they will not be able to. They all feel you can't stop this global warming. We're going to have a trash planet, and we'll, how, how are we going to adapt? They feel that we can't stop the machine. They all feel that. And everybody thinks you can't get a good president. You can't. You know, those, those, those spoiler candidates, Nader, they're all equally bad. Then there's no, if people don't think it can be peace, then that, that will be self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And that's, what, that's, what, that's the real danger of the, of the materialist culture and the authoritarian cultures that are still prevalent on the planet. 2,500 years after Buddha, Jesus, Zoroaster, Confucius, Lao Tzu, all these people told us, talk to each other, learn, be civilized, be a gentleman, Confucius said, be nice, you know. But you know, the first emperor of China burned all his books. But then the second dynasty, like, dug them back up yeah. and tried to implement them, you know. So, so the number is, one issue you see is that people are no longer believing in peace. But they can imagine yes. it. Yeah. I think that you know they, they, can't, they have to some imagine can't it. Imagine. Yeah. They have to like try to learn imagine how to it. imagine it. You know, mm. like to imagine it in order for it to become true. That's one, right. One of the things that I'd like to say in response to your question, you know, is you know what, what are my last thoughts about peace? One thing that you know, and this was what Bob was saying this morning. Last thoughts. My last thoughts. My dying thoughts. My my last thoughts, and this is what Bob spoke to this morning in the shamans and suttas uh, class that we we taught, which is that it's important to remember that at the heart of our being is peace. It's our Buddha nature. Yeah. It's the part of us that is connected in an unbroken way, unbroken way, mm-hmm. to compassion, to goodness, to kindness, and it's our responsibility to discover that within ourselves. It's our responsibility to do whatever work we have to do on a personal level to be able to resolve the obstacles that keep us from being connected to that place. And this is what coming to peace is all about. It's what my work is all about. And I think, you know, Bob, you have this much more global view, and I have a very personal view. And I think that they both are very important. They have to be connected. And, and they're seems. totally connected. And I, so I think, you know, if I had so any, any parting <laughs> message, it would be, you know, spend the time that you need to spend to know yourself. Mm. to discover the part of yourself that knows peace, that knows wisdom, that knows compassion, because it does exist. And if you have to imagine that it exists to begin with, then imagine it. That's really good. I really like that. There is another thing that helps that too. It's like the difference between the bodhisattva practice and the individual vehicle practice. You know, both are doing the same thing of looking in themselves to discover their nature, mindfulness and meditation and so on. But the Bodhisattva one, the motive in doing it is in doing their internal transformation. That's part of the external transformation. So they're doing it for all beings. It's like the runner, the marathon runner, the famous Greek marathon runner, Mm. who ran to the Athenians to warn them about the Persians invading, and then collapsed and died even, because he went past the ability of his body, because he was doing it for the whole community, Mm. rather than someone who's just running for their own ego. You know, it's like a... It gives you a stronger energy when you know that going into yourself to make peace is part of making peace yes, for everybody. For yeah. everyone. So your motive is you're yeah. doing this for everyone.
Yeah, you're not being you know? selfish. A lot of people are afraid to do that inner work of focusing inward because they're afraid they're going to be selfish. Self-indulgent It's or so not yeah. selfish. It's so not selfish to work towards your own enlightenment right. because you will naturally seek to help others once you have touched that place within you that, mm. that knows peace. You will seek to help others find that peace. Mm, it, will be, right. it will be your, your driving force. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful note to end yeah, on. I used, yeah, well, you know, you, you can you can turn it off after this. No, please. I used to I used to give the I used to give my students in college, and I will be doing that in a week or so. I think actually next week at, at my last Columbia class, because I'm retiring. Your last class, but, wow. Columbia one. Yeah. But uh, I'm just going to keep teaching here and there, but not in Columbia. And uh, I give them the Santi Deva challenge, <laughs> that all happiness comes from working for that and wishing for the happiness of others. And all suffering comes from wishing your own happiness. And I give them that challenge and they, they, some students are brave enough to really take me up on it. And when they do, they, it's usually the males and then they always get to sex. Inevitably, these young kids, you know. And then they say, no, I have really great sex by being selfish, they say. So then, then my final argument to them is, go see a sex therapist. <laughs> And I'm joining your girlfriend and asking you to go find a sex therapist if that's the case. Or read Coming to Peace. <laughs> or read Coming to Peace. I could have said that. Now, okay, next time I'll say that. You, can, you don't need to use that. But, uh, you should definitely use that. I always that. get to that. This is I always get to that. Sure. I was due because they always come up with that one. You know? yeah. Oh, great sex when I really just out there for myself. You know? Yeah. And I say, well, there are these sex therapists, and they'll help you out with that. You see, <laughs> they'll show you that Shanti Deva is correct. Actually. Yeah, you have to give it up, you know. Well, when they probably haven't had enough it. sex because what? when they have it, when they have more sex, they'll realize that it's better to, you know, be connected to your partner. I, I think. think so. <laughs> in general. Yeah, it's gen- in general. <laughs> All right. So maybe just uh, as a final, as a final closing, we I, we talked way more about orgasms than I anticipated. <laughs> Um, but uh, where can people find out more? Obviously, you know, Bob, you have a website. Is it Robert Thurman? Bob, no, BobThurman.com. Bob so right. people can go there to find all your books and Talk where you're going to be at. Do you do you update with workshops and stuff like that on uh, the website? Not as well as we should. Because I, I don't. I lack assistance sometimes. Oh, we need to get you some but, assistance. But uh, I need to get that better done. But I think some to some extent, yes. Okay, great. So BobThurman.com and uh, SacredStream.org. Dot org. Right. Is it stream or streams? Stream. Sacred Stream. Sacred All right. Stream. It's been such a pleasure talking to both of you. <laughs> it's a real honor to be here at Sound With You. So thanks so much. And, uh, the intensity of that plural was really fun. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. okay. All right. That's great. Uh, it's a wrap. It's Do a you wrap. know Wilhelm Reich? By the way, did you ever read his work? You know, I read a little bit of Reich when I was a bit when I was a bit There's younger. There's one book that you really like. Yeah. Okay. This is off the record. Yeah. You really like this book. It's called The Emotional Play.